Good morning. Good morning. Let me uh, let me wish uh, let me wish you a happy Father's Day for those of you to whom that applies, and let me especially wish a happy Father's Day. I want to give a shout out to everybody whose Father's Day present was. I got to sleep in this morning instead of going to church, and so you're listening to this on the podcast because I know everybody diligently listens to the sermons on the podcast on those Sundays when you're not here. Um, speaking of the podcast, uh, we are going to d- do a uh, somewhat digested version this morning of something we took about five weeks and three hours to do back in the fall of 2013. We had a, a brief series in September and October 2013 where we broke down uh, what, what it means when we say we're evangelical, and uh, I, I would refer that to you um, if you would like to go into more detail uh, this morning, we don't have uh, three hours because uh, we got a reservation for brunch at noon. I don't know about the rest of you guys that's done in Columbia. Um, so the text this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 11, going through 6-2. Paul says, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. I mean, if we're out of our mind, it's for God's sake. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. But it's Christ's love that compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, that he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard nobody from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we don't do that anymore. See, if everyone, anyone is in Christ, what you have is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. And He committed to us that word of reconciliation. What that means is that we are Christ's ambassadors. It's as though God were making His appeal through us. And so we beg on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become God's righteousness. So as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive His grace in vain. He says that in the time of my favor I heard you, in the day of salvation I helped you. Well, let me tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. As Galen mentioned last week, and I think Mark Galley did the week before, our understanding of what it is to be evangelical has a lot to do with the definition that we got from this historian named David Bebbington. The, the irony is that we know about what it is to be evangelicals in America thanks to a British historian who is writing about evangelicals in Britain. This 1989 book called Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, A History from the 1730s to the 1980s. Um, I guess it must be the marketing department that says, you know, evangelicalism in modern Britain 
doesn't sing enough. That's not going to sell enough books. What we really need is a subtitle that says, A History from the 1730s to the 1980s. Then we'll have displays in all the airport bookshops. Uh, but, but what Bevington did in this book was he gave us kind of a shorthand definition of evangelicalism that work, works well for, for Britain, but it also works for America. I mean, the fact is, the story of evangelicalism in Britain and the story of evangelicalism in America really are, are quite similar. Something's happened first over there, and then they happen here, and something's happened here, and then they happen over there. But, but culturally, we're very similar. They say we're a, a, a common people separated by a common language. Uh, no, we don't say that. What do they say? We say we're different people separated by a common language. Anyway, we're a lot like the Brits, uh, even more so like the Canadians. And I just, I'm sorry. I really, it's, we all love you. We really, almost all Americans love you. Canada Day is coming up in two weeks, by the way, July 1st. I'll just, you may want to think about that. But Bebbing, what Bebbington laid out was, was four marks of evangelicalism. Very quickly, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. That is, Bible or scripture, cross, faith, and witness. The, we hold to a view of scripture that says that it is God's word, that when Paul says that it's God-breathed and it's useful for all kinds of things, he actually meant it. That when, when Peter said there are things in Paul's letters that are difficult to understand, he meant that. But he also meant it, Peter did, when he said that no prophecy came about because the prophet was making it up as he went along. Rather, he was carried along by the Spirit as he wrote. We, we believe that this Bible testifies to the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ and that that is, in fact, the pivot point of cosmic history, that nothing makes sense before or after if you don't understand that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting people's sins against them. We believe that in light of that, all of us have the opportunity, but also the responsibility, to respond to God's gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we do to earn that, but we do have to respond to what God has offered us. And what that means is that not only do we respond and, and have our sins forgiven and have an assurance of salvation, but we start living that out in, in the way that, that we operate in, in our day-to-day lives and, and we get actually the privilege to share this good news with others. That's a, always been a piece of activism for evangelicals is evangelism, sharing the good news with other people. But as important as this Bebentonian, quadri, Bebentonian quadrilateral has been in uh, academic discussion of evangelicalism, I think if we all want to understand what evangelicalism is, there's another thing that Bevington says right at the beginning of his book that may be just as useful, if not more so, when he says this. He says, for an evangelical, one eye is constantly being cast over the shoulder at the ritualists and the rationalists. In other words, evangelicalism has as much to do with rejecting ritualism and with rejecting rationalism or liberalism as anything else. So what that means is if you have a high view of Scripture, if you hold to Biblicism, then you are going to recognize that a content-free ritual is not going to get you any place. If all you do is show up someplace on Sunday mornings and you go through certain motions, but if you're not actually 
uh, animated by, and if what you're doing has nothing to do with the Word of God, then that's just dumb, for one. I mean, it, it's silly that you would do that, but, but there's, no, there's no content behind it. And against rationalism, or as it came to be uh, operative here, liberalism, we hold to the Word of God above the things that make sense to us. We recognize, as Paul says, that God's foolishness is greater than man's wisdom. Or as the writer of Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, and that way leads to death. We recognize that God has something to teach us. And so when we look to the Word, when we read Scripture, we look not with an eye toward correcting it. We look not with an eye toward editing it and improving on what God has given us, but we look to it to teach us We look to hear the word God has for us. The great evangelical pastor Eugene Peterson said that when we read the Bible well, it's an act of sustained humility. We're waiting for God to teach us, not for us to tell God what he should be teaching us. We have a high view of the cross. If we're crucicentric, then we recognize that as opposed to the kind of thing you have with religion and ritualism, we are saved by Christ's atoning death on the cross, not by our doing the right things when we come into a building like this. We're saved by what God has done for us, not by our somehow earning God's favor by the things we do for Him in a religious way. We also, against rationalism, recognize that this message of the cross, as God says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it is scandal to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. He's not saying that as sort of a theoretical concept. That was his experience, as he's trying to tell his fellow Jews that Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean carpenter crucified, came back from the dead, and he is, in fact, Israel's Messiah. They were outraged. I mean, the, the, the standard response to this message was somewhere between scoffing and violence, right? You read the story of Stephen in Acts. He tells this story, and what do they do to him? Well, they stone him. And for Greeks, you get that picture when Paul's talking to the the smart guys in Athens on Mars Hill. We're honored to have with us uh, this morning Dr. Eric Silverman. Eric uh, uh, is a are you the immediate past president of the Eastern Region of the Evangelical Theological Society? He's the immediate past president of the Eastern Region of the Evangelical Theological Society. Eric is a philosopher. He's an evangelical Thomist. Uh, the Society of Evangelical Thomists can pretty much fit in the corner booth at Denny's. Uh, but Eric is one of the smartest people I have ever met. And Eric will tell you that there are some really, really smart people who do not understand why we would believe the stuff that we believe. I mean, they just they don't get it. So when Paul was on Mars Hill speaking in Athens, the center of culture and learning, and he's telling them about the resurrection, there are a few who said, well, this, okay, this is, this is interesting. I, 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 I can hear some more about this. And, and a very few seemed to respond to the message, but most of them were like, well, what's this moron talking about? Guy, we know people die and they don't come back. Why is he saying this guy rose from the dead? It's crazy. So we hold to this message of a crucified and risen Messiah in the face of what our culture would tell us, in the face of what we're supposed to think would make sense. And we place our faith, we recognize that we need to respond to this gracious offer of salvation. We don't 
just say, well, you know, as long as somebody dunked me underwater when I was a kid, then that's okay. Or, I, we're not going to say, well, everybody's okay. It doesn't really matter that the Bible says that God was saving people. I, I don't really think there's anything we needed to be saved from, so, you know, that's just kind of excessive. No. No, you, the, the reason we need a Savior is because we need to be saved. The reason God needed to, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself is that it needed to be reconciled to Him. Amen? Does this, does this world look like it's properly reconciled to God right now? Do you feel like you're properly reconciled to God right now? No? If, if you do, God bless you, because I don't feel that way. Now, I, th- there's a lot of work that's got to get done. There's a lot that's broken that needs to be fixed. And, and none of that starts getting fixed until our sins are dealt with. That's why it seems like every time we get these encapsulated messages about reconciliation, there's always something in there about sin being dealt with. God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. And so just because you do some stuff in a church, that doesn't mean that you have responded to God's gracious offer of salvation. You need to own that. Now, the, what that means is traditionally evangelicals, most evangelicals have baptized people when they are grown-ups, when they come to an age where they're able to own that for themselves. Those evangelicals that are part of traditions like the Anglican tradition, like the Reformed tradition where you baptize uh, people as infants, expect that there is going to be a time of confirmation where the person who's been baptized as a baby is then at the point where they're able to own that faith for themselves. They're going to affirm that and say, yes, this is, this is my faith. I am responding to this offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. I am, I am owning for myself what my parents did on my behalf when I was little. And then as for activism, as for witness, to be an evangelical means that you look over your shoulder and then look away from the idea that following Jesus is about just checking the box on Sunday morning, knocking out your hour here and then you're good. Or, if you're really into the ritual and the, and, and the religion, being really wrapped up. Maybe you spend more than an hour in church on Sunday morning because you get really excited about all the linens and you get excited about making sure the candles look pretty and all the brass is polished. And everything is all about making, basically playing church instead of genuinely worshiping Jesus. No, to, to live for Christ is to live for Christ 24-7, not just when you're in a church building. That doesn't mean the things we do in church are not important. They're very, very important. But if you make them the focus of your worship rather than Jesus, then you've missed the point. And likewise, when it comes to witness, we look over our shoulders and then look away at those who work really hard to try to make people who are suspicious of Christianity somehow find it palatable. Schleiermacher talked about reaching out to the cultured despisers. His idea was that if you could bring the Christian message in a way where you knocked off some of the rough edges, you took away the things that that would be seen as foolishness to the culture around you, uh, then if people could grab onto something that was was, uh, a little less scary, a little less weird-looking, that that they could really own that and and grow into the faith. That's not what happened. They still rejected it. And then you had people who were Christian thinking that the message of the cross as it was being taught was foolishness, and they got to go with an easier alternative. That approach to the faith has not been one that has proven to be fruitful over time. 
Ultimately, the faith is eviscerated when you try to pick and choose which parts you think are going to be worth talking to people about. But the other piece of this that we need to talk about that that Bevington doesn't because he's talking about Britain and because he wrote in 1989 uh, is, is the fact that evangelicalism in America involves looking over the shoulder not just at ritualism and at liberalism, but also at fundamentalism. The history of evangelicalism in America is that in in the post-World War II era, there was a decisive move on the part of some very important leaders in American Christianity that we were going to be faithful about worshiping Jesus, that we were going to try to live holy lives for His sake, that we were going to be serious about sharing our faith with others and not be embarrassed, that, that we were going to uh, hold to the truths of the faith as, the, as they've been passed down over the years, that we we're going to maintain a high view of Scripture, but, but that there were aspects to fundamentalist culture in, in mid-century America that we needed to reject, that, that there was a, a paranoia, there was a legalism, there was an anti-intellectualism, that, that characterized that, that we, were, we, we didn't see that going anyplace. So people like Carl F.H. Henry, who is the, the first editor-in-chief of Christianity today, the people who founded the Evangelical Theological Society, the people who founded the National Association of Evangelicals, and Billy Graham being the most important of them, who was, of course, himself instrumental in, in starting Christianity today. Uh, at one point, you could tell the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical because a fundamentalist was somebody who hated Billy Graham. Why did he hate Billy Graham? Well, because Billy Graham was willing to, to get up on the stage at his, at his crusades and he would bring the local Methodist pastor up there to pray if, if he wanted. The fundamentalists would say, no, the Methodists, they're apostate. They've, they've gone off the deep end. I mean, Billy Graham would bring Catholic bishops and, and priests up if, if they wanted to come along. And of course, your typical fundamentalist would say the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon. Now, an evangelical is somebody who says, I am all about maintaining the core elements of what it is to follow Jesus faithfully, but not that way. I'm not going to take that style. And so when it comes to Scripture, for example, fundamentalists had worked themselves into, bless you, Dr. Silverman, fundamentalists had, had worked them, basically painted themselves into a corner in the ways that they were reading Scripture so that, for example, in the, in the, in the case of, of how you read the opening of Genesis, fundamentalists got themselves to the point where the only possible way you could understand those texts was to believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days about 6,000 years ago. And evangelicals would say, well, maybe that's not what the writer's trying to say. Maybe the point is that God's the creator and nobody else is. Maybe the point is that all these things that everybody else around them is worshiping, those are things that the one true God created. Maybe we're supposed to read this as an ancient Near Eastern creation narrative and not as something we would find in a science textbook. So maybe when we see where all of this, this, where your strategy of reading caches out and it caches out in a weird, unsustainable place, maybe there's something we're missing. Maybe we shouldn't be imposing our way of reading onto the text. Maybe we should read the text the way God has given it to us. Because you can get real confused real fast. In the book of Proverbs, you have the verse that says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then right after that, or right before it, I always forget which one goes first, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly. So what's fun, actually, if you take somebody who is a fundamentalist, who is a literalist, you just kind of put those there and, and, and they get kind of stuck like in a constant loop, like a computer that gets hung up and doesn't do anything. No, an evangelical says, well, you know, it seems like 
The Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and sometimes it makes sense to answer a fool according to his folly, and sometimes it makes sense to get as far away as possible. The internet usually is a place where it makes sense to get as far away as possible. But Scripture is not the way it is as we understand it. It's the way it is as God gave it to us. When it comes to the cross, we as evangelicals affirm that it is the cross that saves us. It is not what we think about the cross that saves us. It's not a theology of atonement, having the right ideas, saying the right things about the cross that saves us. It is Christ's work on the cross that saves us. When it comes to faith, we're saved by God's work regenerating us. One element of that work is that He enables us to respond to His gracious offer of salvation. But if you have made some one-time decision, if at some point you came forward to an altar call and you said you gave your life to Christ and then literally everything else in the rest of your life shows no evidence that that was real, then maybe that wasn't real. Maybe you haven't actually responded. Whereas with fundamentalism, the drive is to get somebody to raise their hand or to come forward and say the sinner's prayer. And if you do that, then you have your get-out-of-hell-free card and you're clear. Evangelicals would say, well... Maybe just saying certain things isn't, isn't, isn't going to actually get you there. And as for witness, probably the core difference between evangelicals and fundamentalists is that the fundamentalist approach to evangelism, to witness for Christ, was to set up a well-defined community with very, very uh, thick and high walls and to set very clear rules of how you're supposed to behave in that community, and you try to get people to be part of your community and to to act like you're supposed to, but you're always really scared of anybody who's not living like you. And so the main thing is that you make sure you only consume uh, entertainment and news that affirms your point of view. You make sure that you only spend time with people who think the way that you think. You, You take a suspicious, paranoid attitude toward everything else around Whereas evangelicals said, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe there was a need for us in the early part of the 20th century, since people who had conservative traditional views were getting bounced out of all the major seminaries and and denominations. Maybe there was a time when we needed to establish our own institutions, and maybe there's a place for institutions where we are setting the agenda, where we have certain clear statements of faith and conduct, but maybe there's also a place for faithful followers of Jesus to serve in other institutions where we're not the majority, where we're not setting the agenda. Maybe every evangelical scholar of of English literature shouldn't be teaching at a Christian college. Maybe you should have some of them teaching at the University of Maryland. Maybe you should have evangelical scientists doing research at UMBC and, and not just at Moody Bible Institute. And so the question that drives this whole series, the question that we set up is, is still evangelical with a question mark? And my answer is yes with every possible intensifier attached to it. Every possible and every appropriate intensifier, and I would in other contexts intensify it with all kinds of inappropriate intensifiers as well. I am not willing to let what it is to be an evangelical be defined by people who have abused that title and used it to mean something else. 
In a lot of ways, I'm still an evangelical like I'm still an American, even though some people have done dumb things in the name of our country. Even though there are things that people have done that have been at odds with the fundamental nature of our country. That's why I, I find so compelling what Dr. King said when he was uh, at the Lincoln Memorial and as I have a dream speech when he said, we're not, we're not asking that America be something other than what it is. We're asking that America come through on what it is. That when the founder said all men are created equal, they should have recognized that that meant everybody, black and white. We're asking America to come through on what it really is. I'm still, in fact, an Episcopalian, even though plenty of Episcopalians have done and said plenty of things that I would disagree with. This is the tribe that I personally have chosen to, uh, to come into, and nobody else has uh, here, and that's fine. That's part of our story with New Hope, is that I was released, I was given liberty to enter into a relationship with a different denomination with New Hope staying fiercely independent. I'm still an O's fan, even though they're terrible right now. I mean, just awful. Real, like, it's not going to be long, unless it's a, a Yankees or Red Sox game. You just buy the cheapest ticket you can, and you just sit wherever you want, because nobody's going to be at the ballpark. That's sad. But I am still an evangelical. And the reason, fundamentally, that I'm still an evangelical is twofold. One is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. This is the gospel that we proclaim. And as Galen said last week, I, like him, I am not ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. And, I'm an evangelical because, Paul goes on to say, in light of this fact, we are Christ's ambassadors because God entrusted to us this message of reconciliation, this word that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He didn't call us to go off and create little holy huddles and get our Jesus on and not worry about the rest of the world. He didn't call us to go and to so thoroughly assimilate into the rest of the world that we don't look any different. He called us to be his ambassadors, which means that we are envoys of the one true God in territory that rightly is his, but it's just under enemy occupation right now. We're an outpost of his kingdom. The church is a sign, an agent of the kingdom of God, and we right here at 200 Ingleside are an outpost. And New Hope and St. Hilda's and Zomi Mission Church and Kumi Fellowship, or whatever their name is this week, they keep changing it. We are all his ambassadors in the ways and places where God's put us because we have a story to tell. We have good news to share. And that good news is the evangel, the gospel, the euangelion, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ so that the whole world might be reconciled to him. And I, for one, am unwilling to give any of that up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we receive with gratitude from your word this good news for us, for all of our creation. We pray, Father, that in light of what you are doing in us, 
the transformations that you are bringing about, we pray that we would more and more effectively be your ambassadors. That we would be faithful to do the work of imploring others to be reconciled to you. We pray that this would begin with us, that our own lives would more and more demonstrate the reconciliation to you and your good purposes that you have in mind for us. We pray that we would be faithful as your ambassadors. We pray that we would be effective. We ask all this in the mighty name of the one Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.